All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor, and uh, we're going to be continuing our Advent series this morning called The Promise. Um, Before we dive into that, though, I want to remind you that today is the day that we take our end-of-the-year mission offering. We do this every December, and it's a great chance for us uh, to partner together to solve problems we otherwise couldn't solve or to be generous in ways we otherwise couldn't be generous. And this year we're going to be focusing um, uh, our, our partnership of, of this element of this offering on R3. And so I wanted to show you a video just to fill you in a little bit more about who these guys are. So a good portion of, so we got three areas that we focus our, our end-of-the-year mission offering on, and, uh, and this year uh, our, our regional partnership is going to be with R3. We have partnered with them in the past. Uh, Kempton's a good friend. We partner with City of Joy, the church down there. It's a good way to invest in the community in such a way that we're not just like solving a temporary problem. We're investing in people that are investing in the community. We are, we are supporting people that are committed to living in that community, being in that community, sharing the love of Christ in that community, uh, and then expanding that partnership so that we can continue. I mean, East St. Louis literally is 25 minutes from my front door, right? It, they are my neighbors. And yet, um, we can very easily uh, go through our day and forget that East St. Louis is even part of our community. We can forget that this area of devastating need is, is literally right out our front door. And so, this is an incredible way for us to, uh, to continue to invest in this partnership, to continue to, to grow in our relationship with these guys. In the coming year, I'm actually going to be looking for an R3 mission lead uh, at Trailhead, somebody who they, they do these once uh, a month Saturdays, where they go down and they, build, they work on these houses. Uh, and, and there are other ways for us to partner. Um, and so, you know, we're just praying that God is going to continue to expand uh, this partnership. And so the offering that we take today is, is going to go into three, um, three areas of focus. The first is going to help us solve a problem at the building um, that is extra budgetary, right? We're going to, we have, we have a, a kitchen that we, we never renovated, uh, and our hospitality team has, has been phenomenal, uh, working with sinks that are too shallow to wash out the coffee pots and with cabinets that are too old to safely put anything in. Um, and so we, we're, we're going to renovate that um, 
and, and take care of that so that it can be used properly. We are going to invest in R3. We are going to um, invest in our short-term mission fund, which equips people to move out on short-term mission, whether to East Asia or to Honduras, um, our, our two areas of international partnership. Um, and then, of course, 10% of it is going to go toward regional church planting, which that's always an emphasis with us. So there you go. That, that's kind of the overview. That's why we're taking this. This is our opportunity as a community to do something together that any one of us could never do alone. And so um, I'm going to encourage you at the end of the service uh, to give, right, to give generously and to give joyfully. And, um, uh, and, and so when we take the offering at the end of the service, feel free to put your offering in at that point, or you can put your pledge in at that point. We will be taking the offering. Um, so if you weren't prepared or are unable to come today, we'll be taking it for the next two weeks, um, and there will be ways to give online. All right, for now, let's grab our Bibles. We're going to continue our sermon series. Uh, in your uh, Bibles, we're going over to uh, Genesis um, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 5. Page 5. Uh, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, you guys. It is the Advent season. Um, the word Advent means arrival or coming, right? So the Advent season is the opportunity for us to look back to the coming of Christ um, and to look forward to the second coming of Christ, to cut, look back to the first Advent with joy and to look forward to the next Advent um, with, with hope. And, and we started last week in the sermon series looking at Genesis chapter 1, uh, the garden, Adam and Eve, um, because there was a profound promise given in the chaos of rebellion. And that promise becomes a, a central thread that ties um, all the Old Testament together. Because God commits himself to doing something for us that we can't do for ourselves, to send a hero, uh, to send a savior, one who would crush the head of the serpent even though his heel would be bruised in the process so that he might reestablish shalom, God's peace and his presence, the flourishing of all life, uh, to the created order once again. Now we're going to be following that thread of that promise this morning. And we're going to keep going because God reiterates this promise several times through human history in renewed covenants called the covenants of promise. And, uh, and these covenants of promise um, work as a constant reminder through the story that God hasn't abandoned us, that he still has a purpose to redeem and restore. So, so my goal for us in the Advent season, right, as we're going through this, um, I, I, here's really what I want, right? I, I, don't, I don't want just to have, hey, that was a nice devotional thought to help prepare us and, 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 and help us make it through the holiday season because it's pretty rough, right? Uh, help you keep from digging into the eggnog too much. Um, uh, what I'm really, really hoping is, is that um, we're going to be lit up as we look back, like genuinely lit up with joy as we as we consider why Christ Christ came and, and what he did that, that our hearts would be softened and, and we would experience genuine joy simultaneously i want us lit up with with a painful longing for the return of Christ because the first advent wasn't the end of the story right the first advent was like the bookend. The second bookend is still coming. And Christ is, is coming back. And, and I, I would love for us to have that, that um, uncomfortable sensation of hope, of longing, that this is not all there is, that, that this is, is really just a shadow of the true and 
better world that is, has been promised to us and is coming with Christ. All right, so this week, we're going to be jumping ahead from Genesis 1, a few chapters, to Genesis 5, Genesis 6. Uh, we're going to be talking about the story of Noah. Uh, some of you are like, all right, uh, Merry Christmas, right? We're going to be talking about Noah and the ark, the flood. Yes, um, believe it or not, it is actually very relevant to the, uh, the Christmas season, and I hope to be able to show you how. So let's take a look. We're, this, this story spans three chapters. We are not going to read all three chapters um, we are going to read the beginning of chapter 6 and, and then the end of chapter 9 to help prepare us for this. So we're going to begin in chapter 6, um, starting in verse 1, and we're going to be reading through uh, verse 14. All right, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their, they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever. He is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention and thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds and heavens for, of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark. Of gopher wood. All right, jump ahead to chapter 9. In between here, as you can imagine, the flood comes, <laughs> the ark floats, and now they are delivered to the other side. And uh, we're going to begin in verse 8. Noah has just um, offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and, and, and God is um, speaking to him uh, now, starting in verse 8. Then God said to Noah, And to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you and the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it, and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
All right, you guys, um, this is a, a passage that is a little challenging to, to preach uh, for multiple reasons, right? There are a lot of them, um, not least of which is, is that uh, Christians treat this story very much like a, a fairy tale, and, and non-Christians um, just approach it like a myth, right? Which I don't know if those are too far They might be deeply correlated, right? Christians treat it as a fairy tale, and non-Christians are like, no, obviously, right? Here's the thing. Christians have turned this into kind of this story that is um, uh, suitable for, for a child's bedtime. In fact, like to decorate your nursery in, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you, got, you, got, you got all the cute animals, right? You got, you got the big ark. That's impressive. You got the old dude with the long white beard. And, and as I was preparing this sermon... Lauren reminded me that we, in fact, decorated our first child's nursery uh, in a Noah's Ark theme, right? And, and so you get, these, you get these applique stickers for the wall, you know what I'm saying? Like you got all the cute animals, and you got the big boat, and the dude with the big, the big beard. But one thing you never see in these applique are, are corpses floating in the water. I mean, imagine... Um, Where's my image? Not that one. The other one. Imagine that hanging on your child's wall and telling them, hey, go to sleep. Be comforted. Right? We treat it like a fairy tale. It's not. There's nothing cute about this story. There's something very powerful about this story. For unbelievers, few things provoke scorn um, more than the flood, right? When somebody becomes a brand new believer, a lot of times they'll go back to their friends and their friends are like, seriously, you believe all that stuff? You believe the Jesus stuff and you believe that Noah and the ark stuff, right? For some reason, that's always kind of thrown in there, right? You believe that Noah and the ark stuff? Well, here's the thing. Yeah, we, we believe it. Um, uh, it, it, it actually, um, I believe, is uh, a compelling explanation of certain historical and scientific things that we see in the world around us. Um, I believe that, that uh, the same God who could speak the world into existence could, in fact, orchestrate um, something like this, right, as crazy as it is. And, uh, and, and there are, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate even inside Christianity among believers about, about how this looked and what it meant and, and whether you're a young earther or an old earther, you believe the earth is an early creation or, or, or a long creation. Um, it, it impacts how you interpret certain things, whether the, the, the flood covered the whole globe or whether it was regional and it only covered the realm of the world that, that only humanity lived in. Um, here's the thing. There's a lot of things to debate. There's a lot of things to explore. Um, but here it is, I, would, I believe, a compelling uh, explanation of some of the things we see in both history and science. And we would love, if, you, if this is a, a, an area of defeat belief for you, in other words, like, I could never believe in Jesus because that means I'd have to believe in this sort of stuff. We'd love to sit down with you and help unpack with you uh, why we believe it's reasonable, historically and scientifically, to actually believe something like this um, not only could happen, but, but makes compelling logic of, of some of the evidence we see, okay? And so here's the thing. Um, uh, if this is a challenge for you, be willing to do some work, 
right? Be willing to do a little heavy lifting and, and dig in and do some thinking. Don't, don't just listen to your favorite YouTube scholar and, and, and think that they've got all the answers, right? Because they don't. Um, and so we'd be happy to walk with you in that. Um, so that's my caveat up front, right? Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about the context of this story because I think the context is really, really important to understanding the story itself. In Genesis chapter 3, which we looked at last week, Adam and Eve rebel against God, right? Um, a sin bomb goes off, right? We talked about that last week. They broke shalom with God. They broke the flourishing, life-giving connection they had with God by rejecting God, rebelling against God, replacing God with themselves, right? They would no longer submit to God. They would submit to themselves. They wouldn't live for the glory of God. They would live for their own glory. They would no longer live in the overflow of God's goodness. They would look to God's creation to do for them what only God could do, right? They broke shalom with God, and as a result, every relationship was broken. Their relationship with themselves, their relationship with each other, and their relationship with the created order. Every area that used to flourish in the realm of shalom is now broken, and we are still feeling the shockwaves of that explosion today, right? That, that was a, a monumental event in, and, and that, that explains much of, of what we see around us. Now, when you move forward in the story into Genesis chapter 4, you, you see the initial shockwave of this story, right? The first two sons born into the world. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel, and, and Cain murders Abel, right? The big brother murders his little brother because he's jealous of him. He's got a whole world of opportunity and resources around him, and yet he becomes jealous of, of what he does not have instead of looking at the abundance of what God has given him, which is, again, loss of shalom, and, and as a result, he, he murders his brother. The rest of Genesis 4 is actually a, a, a lineage of Cain, right? When you read through Genesis 4, then you move into this lineage. You ever come across those parts of the Bible where it's the beget passages? So-and-so begets so-and-so, begets so-and-so, begets so-and-so, and you're like, okay, I can just skip this, right? Let's just little skip through the begets and get back to the story, right? Um, here's the thing. The begets are there on purpose. <laughs> they're not accidental, and they're actually incredibly important and, believe it or not, incredibly interesting when you actually dig in and start understanding not only why they're there, but who the people are that are involved in it. And, and so Genesis 4 gives us the, the generations of Cain. Now, here's the thing. Uh, I think we know this intuitively. Um, your parents deeply shape you, Right? Um, as much as you hate it, you're going to become your mother. As much as you hate it, you're going to become your father. Now, not a perfect representation of them, not an exact replication of them, but you are, right? If you think about your parents, there are things they handed down to you that shaped you, right, in ways that you didn't have a choice in. And their, their influence on you is going to have an influence on your children, have an influence on your children's children, right? There's a multi-generational influence of, of the character of the parents, right? Whether it is ungodly, where they're handing down patterns of sin and brokenness, or godly, where they're handing down patterns of righteousness and faith, right? And God, by His grace, can break into those cycles and retell a, a human story, praise God, right, that, that, that we are not trapped into that. But when we look at the generations of Cain, we see this playing out, right? Like father, like son. When you look through the generations of Cain, you see patterns of violence and wickedness, right? Like father, like son. And then in Genesis chapter 5, we're introduced to Adam's third son. His name is Seth. 
Now, many people have never even heard of Seth, right? We just get to Cain and Abel and kind of stop reading. Um, but, but there is a Seth, and, and in fact, Adam and Eve had many more children after that. Um, but Seth is, is important. Um, you remember the promise in Genesis 1 when God said, I will send a seed of the woman, a son of the woman, a descent of the woman who, who will crush your head even though you will bruise his heel? It's the line of Seth that that descendant is going to come through. It is the line of Seth that is the, the line of promise, right? And, and so we're given his lineage, right? The son of Seth is, is a guy named Enosh, and then you follow through from Enosh, and it gets all the way to Noah, right? Noah is, is, is a son of, of Seth, right? And then something interesting happens. Um, the story of Noah actually interrupts the genealogy of Seth. This story of Noah, these three chapters that are the story of Noah, are actually right in the middle of the genealogy of Seth, right? It's embedded in this genealogy. Um, It interrupts it. Genealogy picks back up in, in chapter 10. So this whole story is right in the middle of it, and that is, in fact, because I think it helps us understand why God flooded the earth to begin with. So chapter 6 begins, so in other words, in chapter 6, we went through the two genealogies of 4 and 5. Chapter 6 begins with a whole lot of weirdness. Um, I don't know if you noticed that, right? It begins with this whole thing about sons of God, kind of finding the daughters of man attractive and, um, and taking them, and, um, and, and, and then there's these Nephilim. Uh, that lived in the land, uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I have never heard the word Nephilim in any other context. Uh, I have, you're, you're just like, what's a Nephilim? I'm, I don't know, right? And so what are the Nephilim? Who are the sons of God? Who are the daughters of, of men? These are really important questions, and I have to pay, take a little bit of time on this because there are two primary interpretations, and the first one's the most common. I think it's wrong. Uh, but the first one is the most common, and, I, and I'm almost guaranteeing that some of you at some point, if you were raised in a Christian home, if you have Christian background, especially in certain circles, you were taught this, and, and uh, I'm going to respectfully disagree with what you've been taught. Uh, even though this is a common interpretation, I believe it is just wrong. Uh, and this interpretation is this. They, they would teach that the sons of God are angels, and that the sons of God looked out and saw the daughters of man, human women, and became jealous of the whole sex thing, right? They're like, oh, man, those humans are having some fun. And so they became lustful toward human women, uh, took on human form, and, and, and took the daughters of man. And according to this interpretation, the Nephilim are the children that resulted from this ungodly union. Um, they are like demi-angels, right? Um, And in fact, they would reference some translations that translate Nephilim as giants, that there are giants in the land. And and the reason they're giants and they're like these superhuman figures is because they're part angel and part human and and they were really, really bad. And and they would say that's why God flooded the earth is because there was a corruption of humanity and and God needed to save humanity from being corrupted from this this angelic or demonic attack. Now, to, to support this, they would obviously point to the Bible translations that actually use the word giant and say, what other explanation is there for a giant? Uh, they, would, they would point to the fact that angels are called sons of God in other places in Scripture. 
And they are, right? There are other passages that talk about angels as sons of God. Um, and then they would say, look, they took the women. That was an act of violence, and, and um, they, they, they came in with strength, and they came in with greater might and wisdom, and, and they were able to take, which was a, um, uh, a violence of nature. All right, this is why I think it's wrong. First of all, uh, giants is a complete mistranslation. Uh, it was an early mistranslation, and so you will find it in certain Bible verses where instead of Nephilim, it'll say giants. The problem is that's totally wrong. Right? Now, Nephilim is a word that's really, really hard to translate, which is why it's still in Hebrew. Nephilim is, is, a, is a transliteration. Right? They don't know exactly how to translate it, so they just take, that's actually how it sounds in, in Hebrew, and they just put it into English lettering. Okay? The root of it means fallen. It has nothing to do with giants. The root of it is fallen. And so I think a, a decent translation would be fallen ones. Okay, so, so Nephilim doesn't mean giants. And second of all, um, angels are called sons of God, but, but so are men, and, and so are, are earthly rulers, right? It's a phrase that has to be, you have to see it in its context, understand what it means. So just because angels in certain contexts are called sons of God doesn't mean that every time you talk about sons of God, you're talking about angels. You're not. Sometimes you're talking about humans. Sometimes you're, you're talking about rulers. Um, and in fact, it, it's even used in other contexts beyond that. Uh, beyond that, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense, you guys. It just doesn't make any sense. Angels are spirit beings. Uh, they do not have fleshly appetites, right? They don't get hungry, and they're not jealous of your food. You know why? Because they're not hungry, right? They don't look at you and go, ooh, I want to eat. They do not have physical bodies, right? Jesus, in talking about the angels, said that they do not marry, nor are they given in marriage. They are asexual beings. Their number is set. They do not reproduce. To, to, to posit that somehow they become jealous of an earthly experience, a human experience of, of reproduction, that we have this lust drive within us or this desire to, to reproduce, and then say, well, they have the same desire, it, it, it completely misrepresents the character and the nature of the angelic beings, they don't have those internal desires. They don't have those internal drives, right? So you have to actually take an idea that is completely foreign to Scripture and shove it in to try to make sense of this interpretation. It's just, it's just not there. It is, it is a total stretch. It has much more to do, honestly, with ancient mythology than it does with, with biblical theology, right? So here's the thing. I think there's a much better interpretation and one that makes much better sense in the context. And that is that, that we don't read the sons of, of God. Uh, we should read godly sons. That actually is a legitimate translation of the Hebrew structure there. Instead of saying sons of God, which then leads us on this puzzling like path of how do we determine who they are, it's actually saying the godly sons. And in this interpretation, the godly sons is a reference to the descendants of Seth. Remember, we're right in the middle of Seth's genealogy right? The, the line of promise. And in this line of promise, Seth was a faithful man. Seth was, was a man that, that responded to God in faith, and he passed that on to his children. There was a godly lineage of faith. And in this line, this is the line that's going to produce the hero. This is the line that's going to produce the Savior. This is the line that needs to be marked by generations of faith. But they started marrying the daughters of men. In other words, they started marrying indiscriminately is, is how this would be interpreted. They started marrying into the line of Cain. 
Instead of thinking about the godly heritage or, or being people of faith, they started abandoning their heritage of faith and instead pursued uh, the pleasure of the eyes above the godly calling of being people of God. And the result of this is that it amplified wickedness over the surface of the earth to the point that when God looked at the earth right before the flood, there was only one man left on earth that was responding to God in faith, and it was Noah. So who then are the Nephilim? Well, let's take a moment and talk about that. Um, There's absolutely nothing in the passage, by the way, that indicates that the Nephilim are the children of the sons of God and the daughters of men, right? It says the Nephilim were in the land when the sons of God took the daughters of, of man, right? So there's like simultaneous. So who are they? I believe they are pre-flood men who were creatively and powerfully wicked. Now, before the flood, when you look through the genealogies, the lifespan was insane, <laughs> right? When you look at the genealogies before the flood, people lived from, from about 500 years to over 900 years, right? That's a pretty nice lifespan, right? It is significant. When the flood came, one of the reasons God brought the flood was to cut down the span of life. In fact, it said it right in our passage, right? The span of life will now be 120 years. That's not a hard ceiling, but but he basically set a new ceiling to the length of human life to about 120 years. And as I was sitting in this, man, it just kind of, I don't know, man, there's a melancholy to that. I'm 48. I'm going to be 49 in, uh, in February, Right? I'm hitting that 50 mark, that, that midlife thing, right? And I'm kind of looking at my lifespan. And, and the reality is this. I'm just going to be honest. I'm just starting to feel like I'm getting a little bit figured out. You know what I'm saying? Like I am just starting to find my strength. I am just starting to, to feel like I am just not stupid, right? And yet, here I am, and people are telling me, you know, I've got what? Maybe, maybe 20, 25 years of, of of honest productivity, and even that's probably going to be declining in strength and energy as I move into the second half of my life. And I feel a little gypped. You know what I'm saying? Life seems too short. And what this tells me is that it is. We were designed to live a much longer life. In fact, we were designed to live uh, an eternal life in in the overflow in the presence of God, right? But God had truncated the human experience. God shortened the human life. It was an act of judgment on the wickedness of humanity. But listen to me. Listen to me. This is important. Even as it's an act of judgment, it is an act of grace. There are some old men in our world today that are working deep wickedness. Imagine if those men had 800 years to perfect their deceptiveness, their evil intents, their ability to take advantage of people, to, to manipulate, to corral, and, 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 and use power to harm, to destroy. Think about that. God shortened the human life to minimize the damage one person could make over the span of their life. It was an act of grace. The Nephilim then. The Nephilim were fallen ones. They were men of renown, not because they were like, oh, they're great. I mean, these were, these were notorious dudes who, who lived a very long time and had perfected their evil. 
And there was a cultural memory of these people because these people were like the despots, right? We could name some of the worst despots in our own recent history, right? Men that, that even in their short amount of time harnessed a tremendous amount of power and did a tremendous amount of wickedness. These guys became legendary uh, in that. So the Nephilim were, were really bad dudes. So God flooded the earth. God flooded the earth. It was an act of judgment and it was an act of grace, Now, I want you to look at at verse 6 because I want you to see something about God as he is entering into this process uh, because I think we often, I think, have some wrong ideas about God in this, right? In verse 6, and the Lord was sorry. He regretted. He was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God looked at the mankind he had created in his own image to, to operate in, in, in his image and under his authority to carry out uh, the creative endeavors that he entrusted to them, and yet they were working in justice. They were fighting for power. Instead of working to amplify the goodness of shalom, they were working to amplify the selfishness of, of their own hearts. They were, they were, they were working out abusive uh, uh, patterns They were hurting themselves and they were hurting each other. And God looked at this mess and far from being dispassionate and detached, it broke his heart. These creatures created in his very image to live in the outflow of his goodness were so corrupted in the loss of shalom that they were amplifying everything that brought pain and ugliness and shrank joy and misrepresented love. He surveys the wreckage of humanity and he sees nothing but corruption. And in the brokenness of his heart, he determines to judge in a way that limits the damage. He he chooses to judge because God hates sin but he judges in a way that amplifies grace because he still loves these messy, rebellious, hurtful creatures called men. And then he sees Noah. Noah, of course, is the one righteous man on the face of the earth. And a lot of times when we hear that phrase, righteous man, we think of somebody who, oh, he must have been morally perfect. He was somebody who had it all in line. No, uh, no, there's a great passage a little bit later in the Bible where, where uh Noah gets stoned drunk and, and creates a lot of trouble uh, as a result. Noah wasn't a perfect guy. Noah was broken just like everybody else. But you know what Noah had? Noah had a heart that was still responsive to God. We call that faith. Noah still responded to God's love. Noah still responded to God's authority. Noah still, he didn't have it all figured out. He wasn't perfect, but he still responded to God. And we know that because when God showed up and said, hey, build an ark, he did it. Right, which was kind of crazy, because based on the geography of what I understand is going on here, he's building this giant ocean liner in a place where it wouldn't have made any sense. Right, he wasn't building this thing ready to get launched into a sea. He was building it in an area that was that was encased by land. They had rivers, right? They were probably familiar with skiffs, but nobody had built an ocean liner, and yet he goes to work building this thing in the middle of of land. Right? Why? Because he trusted God. Because he still responded to God in faith. 
His righteousness wasn't based on his moral perfection. His righteousness was based on the fact that he responded to God in faith. So I want you to think for a moment about what the ark did. Uh, When the flood came, Noah and his family climbed inside the ark, and we didn't read this part, but God himself shut the door and sealed it so that when the judgment of the flood came, they were kept safe inside the ark uh, through the 40 days of, of, uh, of the outpouring, of the breaking up of the heavens and the breaking up of the deeps, uh, the violent waters that came over the face of the earth, and then over the 150 days of, of uh, desolation as um, the judgment continued. Here's the thing. God poured out his judgment on the earth, and the ark did two things, Right? It took the brunt of the outpouring of God's wrath. The ark took the brunt of the outpouring of God's wrath. God poured out his judgment and the ark took it and simultaneously sealed the people inside and protected them from it. It took the judgment and protected those inside from it and then delivered them to a land of blessing. Does this sound familiar? Right? It should. Um, because God is an incredible storyteller. This is one of the things that amazes me about the Bible. Is that you have all of these stories that are real life stories of people. And yet those real life stories, when you step back and look at them, create a tapestry of a greater story. God is continually weaving his story into our story. He's telling his story through human history. God is at work in the process. And, and Noah had no idea what he was doing, but, but he was building an ark that was foreshadowing the greater hero. And what this tells us is that, is that God, as serious as he is about judging sin, is telling us that he's just as serious about fulfilling his promise. God had the ark built to show us and point us again to the fulfillment of the promise. There would be a hero who would carry you through judgment. There would be a hero who would take the brunt of your rebellion, who would take your place in judgment, and yet carry you safely through that judgment to the blessing on the other side. And as horrific as the flood was, it was nothing compared to the horror Jesus experienced on the cross when he who knew no sin became sin for us. When the Holy One of God stepped in as our substitute to bear our judgment in our place, that we who have faith in him might be delivered to the land of blessing, be delivered to the land of his resurrection, so that that we are delivered to a land we could never deliver ourselves to, to a blessing we could never earn. Jesus is the true and better ark. So they were delivered safely to the other side uh, of the flood, and and, and then God made a promise. God shows up as as Noah is giving thanks and offering a sacrifice to God. God shows up and has a conversation with Noah, and, 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 and he makes a promise, and this promise is called an unconditional covenant because God himself uses that word. He says, I will make a covenant with man. A covenant is an unbreakable contract. Right? It, is, it, is, it, is, it is bound by the very character and nature of the people who enter into it, and God is the one entering in, so it is irrevocable. And it's unconditional because it's only one-sided. God shows up and says, I'm going to do this for you. He doesn't say, if you do this for me. He doesn't say, when you do this for He says, I'm going to do this for you. It was an unconditional covenant of promise. Like the promise in the garden, God commits himself and himself alone. Take a look at chapter 9. 
verses 11 through 13, just to reiterate what's going on. With this covenant. Verse 9 Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the, of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for the, every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God makes a promise to never judge the world again through a flood. Now, he didn't promise not to judge the world through fire. Right? And, and a lot of us are like, well, then what good's that promise, right? Because there, are, there is an indication that God is going to come and purify the created order with fire at some point in the future. What good's a promise that he's not going to, to flood it? Well, hang with me for a minute. He gave a promise not to, uh, to flood the earth again. And then he gave a rainbow as a sign of the covenant. Now, whether he created the rainbow because there was a climactic change that took place when the flood occurred or whether he just gave the existing rainbow a new meaning, Right? That, that's up for debate. But, but he, he gave the rainbow as a sign of the covenant. Now, here's the thing. In Hebrew, there's no special word for rainbow. Right? That's why the translation says, I have set my bow in the heavens. There's no word for, for rainbow in Hebrew. It, it is the word for, for bow, an actual bow that you would use in hunting or in warfare. Right? God is literally saying, I hang my bow, my weapon of, of, of justice in the clouds. My weapon of wrath is hung up, and it is pointed away from you. You are safe. There's no more judgment. God said he put his bow in the clouds as a reminder of his promise never to flood the world again. All right, we know this means a lot more. Just like the ark means more than just a boat, the rainbow means more than just a promise not to flood. In the same way the ark represents Jesus, the rainbow represents the beauty and finality of forgiveness. This weapon that would destroy us because we deserve justice is now hanging there as a beautiful reminder that our hero took our justice in our place. That our Savior took our place and bore the brunt of the judgment we deserve that he might deliver us faithfully through it. This weapon is a beautiful reminder. Jesus took my judgment so I could stand with him in blessing. And Jesus taking the full judgment leaves me only the beauty of the blessing of grace. You guys, every time we see a rainbow, Every time we see a rainbow, it should prompt our hearts to joy and to gratitude. Every time we see a rainbow, it should be an Advent moment, a moment that causes us to look back with gratitude at a Savior who bore such a a cost, who paid such a cost that I might be delivered into such a blessing, an Advent moment that renews our joy and increases our hope. 
that gets us looking back at what God has done to deliver us and looking forward to what God will do in the redemption and the restoration of shalom. You guys, Jesus, Jesus, the son of Adam, Jesus, the son of Seth, Jesus, the son of Noah, was the one who was born to bear our judgment on our behalf so that God's bow of justice would no longer be a thing of terror to us, but a thing of beauty and a promise of security. So as we continue to prepare our hearts for Advent, let's again bring our hearts in line with the covenants of promise, renewing our joy and igniting our hope. You guys, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to take... um, our special offering. So instead of our normal time of, of reflection, we are going to take our special offering at this time. And, and so I want to pray for that. And then we're going to take communion after that. Um, and so that'll be introduced when we get there. Like I said, if you didn't bring your offering this morning, um, feel free to drop a pledge uh, in the offering to, to let us get the count. We would love to get an idea of, of, of what God is going to equip us to do uh, through this offering. Uh, if you weren't prepared for this morning, uh, feel free uh, to, to um, make your offering any time in the next two weeks, whether dropping off a check with us or, or you know, giving us a, an online donation. Um, because here's the thing, guys. I mean, we get an incredible opportunity to do together what we could never do alone. So, so let's do it, right? Let's do it. Let me pray for us, and, um, and then we'll take our offering. Father, we thank you that um, even in judgment we see the hand of your grace that that you are not a capricious God who, who just gets um, annoyed. <laughs> you, you didn't just get tired of mankind and decide to wipe them out. Um, Lord, you, you even in, in bringing the flood were mitigating and controlling the effects of our rebellion. You were restraining the evil that we let loose in the created order that you might minimize the suffering that comes with it. Man, what a crazy story. The craziest part of it, Lord, isn't the flood or the animals or or anything else. The craziest part of it is that a holy God would still love us sinful creatures. That a God of righteousness and beauty would have patience with such foolish, self-centered, manipulative, prideful creatures like us. Man, thank you for loving us, Lord. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son, your beloved son, that he might be our ark, that he might bear our judgment, that we might safely be brought through to a land of blessing we could never earn or claim on our own. Renew our joy, ignite our hope, We pray in Jesus' name. You guys, our ushers are going to come forward, take our special offering.